You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you today. Sorry to interrupt y'all's conversations, but... uh, is if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I am uh, so glad that you've joined us today. I, you picked a great Sunday to be here because this morning we are beginning a brand new sermon series from the Book of Ruth. And uh, oh, yeah, exciting. And so, uh, the Book of Ruth, we're calling this sermon series The Power of Loyal Love because. You can uh, sum up the book of Ruth by saying that it's a love story. And in a way, it is a love story, a love story between a man and a woman. It's a beautiful story. You're going to get to hear that as this month continues. But uh, more than that, more significantly than that, it's a love story also between God and his people. In fact, uh, what we learn in the book of Ruth is that God has a powerful, loyal love for, for his people. And that uh, that loyal love is really summed up in this kind of key Hebrew word that's found throughout the book of Ruth. It's the word hesed. And uh, hesed, you kind of have to say it like that. I can't really do it real well, and it sounds like I'm going to do something gross, so I won't keep saying it. But um, anyways, hesed love means uh, loving kindness or loyal love. And like I said, it's a key theme throughout this book. This Ruth can be summed up as a love story. However... It doesn't begin that way. The book of Ruth begins more, more like a tragedy, especially for the uh, main character in chapter 1 of Ruth, uh, a lady named Naomi. Uh, for Naomi, uh, things have gotten about as bleak as they possibly could be. And as a result, she's really begun to question God's loyal love for her. Or I should really even say more than question. She's concluded there's no way that God's love for her is loyal. And she's come to a place where the circumstances, the tragic, the horrific, the painful circumstances in her life has really shaped her view of God. My assumption is, as we look at chapter 1 today, that many of us will be able to um, see ourselves in Naomi. We'll be able to relate with her. If you have experienced painful, uh, tragic circumstances, as most of us have or maybe even all of us have, uh, you'll be able to understand why Naomi really begins to question God's love for her. Perhaps you have gone through those moments, and you not only have questioned God's love for you, but you've questioned even like God's existence or his control or his goodness. Like, you, like friends, nothing can erode our faith in God faster than painful and tragic circumstances. And that's, it's understandable. But if we are, and if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and if we as a church family say, like, we're committed to practicing the way of Jesus together in Austin, right? And so if we're going to do that, and if you're going to do that, if you're going to practice the way of Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus faithfully for the long haul, then you have to know how to weather tragic, painful circumstances and still hang on to faith in God. Because we're all going to face those kind of circumstances at one point or another, and most likely at many points. 
in our lives. If we're going to walk faithfully with God, if we're going to love God with a hesed, a loyal love, then we need to know what's true about him in the midst of the hardest of times. And the book of Ruth tells us what's true about him in the hardest of times. And so we're going to look at this together. Let me pray as we get started, and then we'll jump into Ruth chapter 1. Father God, we, we do just turn right now and ask that you would teach us about yourself through the study of Ruth. Help us know what's true about you, even whenever our circumstances of our life are hard and tragic and full of sorrow. God, teach us what's true about you so that when we go through those moments, we wouldn't run from you. But, Lord, we'd cling to you so that you could comfort us by your loyal love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. All right. Starts this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. You're like, bum, bum, bum. It kind of sets the stage. This is not a good time. If you're familiar with the uh, time of the judges, which is really told to, uh, told to us from the book of Judges in the Old Testament, right? This time was a, was a bad time in the, in the history of Israel. And uh, Ruth is set in that time frame. Now, the time of Judges, a couple of highlights. One is that uh, Israel is in the promised land. That's a good thing, right? Out of Egypt, through the wilderness, they're in the promised land, but they have begun to rebel against God. They've begun to go their own way. In fact, the time of the Judges is best summed up by a phrase that's repeated throughout the book of Judges. It's the phrase, uh, uh, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit or everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, this was a dark time in Israel's history, but as we will see in the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is like a bright spot in the midst of this dark historical background. But as I said, it doesn't begin as a bright spot. It begins with a famine being in the land, and it begins with the uprooting of a family. So keep reading. Now Elimelech, no, I'm sorry, so a man, skipped a part, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Okay, so as a result of the famine in Bethlehem, uh, this family leaves where they're from. They leave the promised land. They leave their home. They leave their people, their clan, and they go away from the promised land into a different foreign nation. And when they do, things get really, really bad. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other, Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That's a, a lot of pain and sorrow packed into that last sentence. Naomi was left without her husband and two sons. Can y'all imagine uh, being Naomi? Just put, take a minute, just put, put yourself in her shoes. How do you think you'd be feeling? You lose your home, 
You lose all that you know. You're in a strange land. You lose your husband. Ten years later, you lose your two sons. Now you're a widow, childless, two daughters-in-law, strange place. You have to feel like your world has just completely come apart, right? To make matters worse, in that day, to be a widow was to be in an extremely vulnerable position. To be, it meant that you were a vulnerably, uh, vulnerable both physically and financially. I mean, so you're like you are really kind of in this hopeless position. And you have to be thinking like, God, what in the world is going on? Like my world is falling apart. And what's interesting is that Naomi, she kind of feel that way. World's falling apart. But she doesn't think it's falling apart because she thinks that God is not in control. No, she thinks that her world is falling apart because God doesn't love her anymore. And she actually thinks that God is still in control. And yet her life is falling apart. And so that makes her conclude, God has turned against me. God has abandoned me. God does not love me. That his love is far from loyal toward me. Here's why I say that. Keep, keep reading in this passage. This is where it goes next. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, so the people back in Bethlehem, they're, you know, it's rain, crops are being produced, and so she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her, two, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out for the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye. And they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Now, a couple of things to point out from this real quick. Uh, the word kindness, you see repeated twice here, that's our word. That's the key word in Ruth, hesed. And it's the first time it shows up in this book. And what, what Ruth, I mean, what Naomi is saying to Orpah and Ruth is, this, is she's giving a blessing to them. She's saying, may, may the Lord show you his hesed, his loyal love, just as you have been loyally, just as you have loyally loved uh, your husbands, Naomi's sons, and how they've loved her, Naomi. And so she's like, because you have been so loyal in your love. May the Lord show you this kind of loyal love. But then she also says, and kind of implied here is, um, you're not going to find that kind of loyal love by sticking with me. Now, you need to go back home to your mom. You need to go try to find rest in another husband. It's not going to be found in me. And you can, like, read her tone in here. Like she's being really kind to her daughters-in-law. She's blessing them. And yet there's this bitterness, this sense of, may the Lord show you loyal love. But you're going to find that apart from me because he has left me. He has certainly not shown me any kind of loyal love love. Verse 11, uh, well, I should say, 
But <laughs> her daughters-in-law, they're, they're, they're seem to be really awesome people. And they're like, no, no, we don't want to leave you. Like, they're, they're really showing loyalty to Naomi. But Naomi won't have it. She just keeps urging them to leave her. So, verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even I thought that there was hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Now, um, I doubt anyone has used this argument to try to get someone to leave you. This is really weird, right? Like this sounds really like weird into our Western ears. But uh, Naomi in this argument is referring to what's known as the, Le- the Leverite Law of Israel. And the Leverite Law taught this. It said that a hus- uh, if a husband marries and then dies without leaving a son behind, then the husband's brother, if he has a brother, can choose to marry his dead brother's wife. And the, uh, now, <laughs> I, I know that sounds really weird, right? Uh, and, and even to a point, like, oppressive to, to our ears. The woman's going to be automatically married to her dead husband's uh, brother. I don't know how many ladies in this room would be excited about marrying your, your husband's brother. Um, it, if you are excited about that, you should keep that to yourself. <laughs> But we, we need to, to understand, and in, in the con- cultural context of that day, this, this law was actually in place for the protection and the benefit of the widow. That, again, as I said earlier, to be a widowed in that day and age was to be in this incredible vulnerable position financially and physically. And so this law was in place to give, give the extended family a, a way to care for widows. And in this argument, Naomi's saying, she's not speaking of this law in a way that says, like, this is gross. She's saying, I can't provide that for you. She's like, don't stay with me because there are no more brothers to marry you off to. And if I get married tonight and then I have a baby, like, are you going to wait for that kid to grow up? That also would be super weird. She's like, no, my daughter's like, I don't have anything for you. So don't stay with me. What's best for you is to go. And then Naomi adds a big painful statement. She says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That the Lord's hand has turned against me. See, Naomi is convinced that God had forsaken her, that he had abandoned her, and that he had turned against her, which is why she tries to convince her daughters-in-law to abandon her as well. Now, a uh, couple of things that I want to point out from these verses, that uh, because these verses really reveal something, actually I would say two things, about what Naomi believed about God. First, she believed that God was in control of her circumstances. 
She believed that God was in control of all of her circumstances. This is why in verse 6, when she hears that the famine back in Bethlehem has ended, she viewed that as the Lord coming to the aid of his people. See, she saw ordinary circumstances, famine ending, rain coming, food growing in, and she gave it a supernatural interpretation that she saw God's hand at work in the everyday stuff of life. And in addition, this is why when her life fell apart, she also viewed that as uh, coming as a result of God's hand, but this time as a result of his hand turning against her. See, she believed that God's hand, God's activity, was behind the good circumstances, like the famine ending and the bad circumstances of life, like her husband dying and her two sons dying. See, she had a strong belief in what is often uh, referred to or known as uh, the providence of God. Now, uh, the providence of God is defined as the activity of God as he guides and governs his created order. The providence of God is defined as the activity of God as he guides and governs his created order. And one of the main things that the book of Ruth, friends, teaches us is that God is providentially in control at all times. Now, uh, I know that that is kind of hard to get our minds around. But it really is a main emphasis in the book of Ruth. In fact, uh, in the 85 verses found in this, this letter, contained in this letter, uh, uh, there are no um, visions of God. There's no audible voice of God. There's no visible miracles of God that, are, that ever take place. And yet, in those 85 verses, God's name is uh, said 23 times. And out of those 23 times, 21 of those times, his name is spoken of, or he, God's spoken of, by the characters in the story, as opposed to the author or narrator of the story. And when those characters, like Naomi, talk about God, they are often, and actually almost every time, speaking about God in light of what he's doing in their life, how he's orchestrating their circumstances, good or bad, happy or tragic. They speak of God governing and guiding his created order in their lives. This is a major emphasis of this book. Now, this is very important a very important, but also, as I said, a very challenging biblical teaching. The teaching that God is still in control, guiding, governing his created order, even when painful and tragic things happen. But Naomi believed that. And as a result of believing that, she had not ruled out God's involvement in her life that she had not ruled out that God was still actively involved in her life even when tragedy had struck. Now listen, she at this point, she didn't like that God was still involved in her life, but she didn't deny his involvement. And uh, 
Like, this is heavy stuff. Like, this week I've been wrestling with this and how to, how to convey this. And that, like, there's a part of me that wants to, con- like, really communicate, and I'm hopefully we'll get to it, where, where you see how beautiful and good this is. That there's actually a ton of comfort found in the fact that God is in control, governing and guiding all aspects of life. But at the same time, I recognize and I have personally experienced on multiple occasions how this truth doesn't feel comforting. It feels discomforting. I I just want you to, to know that that's also where I'm coming from. So if this hits you in that way, then I can say, yeah, me too at times. All right, but uh, the comforting part of this, I think um, Philip Yancey puts it really well when, when he says, it is so much better to face disappointment with God, as in like with God still in the equation, than it is to face disappointment without God, ruling him out. For if you buy into the belief that God isn't in control when painful and tragic things happen to you, then friends, what are you left with? Are you not just left believing that what's happened to you or what has happened to you was just the result of random bad luck? Where's the comfort in that? But when you believe, as Naomi did, that God is in control even in the hardest of circumstances, then you can have hope that this tragedy is not without purpose. And that God is still at work to accomplish his purpose through your trials and pain, no matter how severe. What I've uh, learned personally when it comes to the providence of God in my life, what I've learned is that I can make and often make uh, two mistakes. And they're kind of opposite mistakes. The one, one mistake discounts God's providence, and the other gets almost too much, reads too much into it. For example, uh, like first mistake is this. I often uh, don't live in light of the, of the providence of God. I don't recognize it, right? And so I go about my day as if God isn't involved in the everyday stuff of life. Much, and, then, and also I can even forget he's involved in the really big stuff of life. So I don't recognize it. I don't recognize that God has providentially given Krista to me as my wife. And so that when things are hard between us, it's not like I don't, I don't ask, uh, man, I make, did I make a mistake? More likely I would ask, I think she made a mistake marrying me. But in the providence of God, no, this was guided by God himself. It gives me this sense of like, man, there's, we're together on purpose, not by accident or the kids that are in my life, or the job that I have. When we live in light of the providence of God, we even see that the people we come across in our everyday life that we run into, we say, this is on purpose. I bet you there's something here. Like, who I live next to, who I work next to, (laughs) that's the providence of God. But I fail to recognize that oftentimes. The other mistake that I make is that I read too much into the providence of God. And what I mean by that is there are times when I'm aware that God is in control, guiding, governing his created order in my life, but I really don't like what's happening. 
And what I do in those moments, or what I tend to do in those moments, is I look at what's happening in the circumstance of life, I connect that to God's providence, and I interpret it to be that this means that this is how God feels about me, and or this is what's true about God's character. That I tie my circumstances and I look through my circumstances to see what God is really like and how he really feels about me. And that's a mistake. And that's the mistake that Naomi makes in this passage. See, she first, and in a good way, recognizes that God is in control of all aspects of her life. That's the first thing she believed. We see that in these verses. The second thing we see that she believed is that uh, that. Uh, her circumstances actually revealed God's character. And friends, that's not true. See, Naomi's interpretation of her circumstances led her to an inaccurate conclusion. She thought that what had happened to her was proof that God did not love her with a loyal love and that his purpose behind her tragedies was not ultimately for her good. But the truth is, God had not stopped loving Naomi. And God did have a purpose in her tragedy. And her, his purpose was actually good. And we're going to see that through our study in Ruth this month. But we get a peek of that in the next couple of verses. So let's keep reading. So after urging her daughters in law to leave her, and after saying the Lord's hand had turned against her, we read this in verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, we'd be hard-pressed to find more beautiful words from, another, from one person to another in all of Scripture. That even after all of Naomi's urging Ruth says, nothing is going to separate me from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. And then she ends by giving uh, a vow, right? She, in verse 16, she had, uh, Ruth had uh, talked about God saying, hey, your God will be my God. But in that phrase, she uses a generic word for God, Elohim. But then in verse 17, she, she makes this vow, and she says, May the Lord, and she uses the Hebrew personal name of God there. May the Lord, may Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And in saying this and, and making this statement, she was voicing a faith commitment. She was saying, Your God has become my God. And she was saying, I want to be held accountable by him if I don't keep my word. May he deal with me ever so severely if anything separates you 
from me. Uh, see, she was making a permanent promise to stay connected to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. Total commitment. The type of commitment, friends, that puts uh, flesh and bone to the concept of God's hesed, loyal love. The type of commitment, the type of action that makes his loyal love tangible to another person. And you need to understand, Ruth had absolutely zero reason to make this commitment. She had nothing to gain by this. She, it, was no, it made no sense, and yet this is her response to Naomi. And as we'll see in this, as this book continues, Ruth's statement here was God's providential way of also saying to Naomi, you think I'm against you. You think that my loyal love has left you, but precious daughter, that is not true. I absolutely love you. And I'm going to show you that through Ruth, your daughter-in-law. Now, unfortunately, uh, Naomi doesn't see Ruth's uh, vow to her as God reaffirming his loyal love for her. But at least it causes her to stop trying to talk Naomi I mean, talk Ruth into leaving her. And so in the next few verses, verse 18, we read this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Okay, now keep in mind that uh, Bethlehem was a small, dinky little town, a few hundred people at most, and, which, and all of them were basically uh, from the same clan, came from the same, in a sense, extended family, and so they were close. And Naomi had been gone for 10 years, and there's no mail and no phone and no Facebook, and so no one knows what's gone on with her. And so they're excited to see her, but Naomi, in this moment, is just feeling nothing but pain. Because when she left Bethlehem, she had a husband and two sons. And now here she is coming back, widowed without her sons. So she says this, Don't call me Naomi. And her name means pleasant one in Hebrew. She says, don't call me pleasant one. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And then the chapter ends with this line. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. That's how the chapter wraps up. It ends with Naomi tying her tragedy to the providence of God. Very, very strongly in these verses. Y'all see that, right? The Almighty did this to me. So she's tying her tragedy to God, to the providence of God. And at the same time, we see that that has caused her to conclude that God no longer loves her 
that God has turned against her. She still believes God's actively guiding, governing her world, but she also believes that the one who is in control couldn't care less about her. And for as she sees it, she had left Bethlehem full, but she had returned empty. But that isn't exactly true, is it? Because Ruth was still standing right there next to her, right? But when we're in the midst of a tragedy, when we're in the midst of such pain and sorrow, and it's so understandable for that pain to cloud our eyes and we just can't even see any good thing that God might be doing, any sign of his love, his goodness, his, even his time's existence. So, Ruth, so Naomi says, hey, call, don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant. One. Call me Mar. I'm bitter. Sad. I was full, and now I'm empty. And she just discounts the fact that Ruth is right there beside her. But friends, Ruth is right there beside her. Ruth is the one that God is going to actually work through to reaffirm his loyal love to Naomi. And at the risk of, and it's not even the risk of, I'm just straight up doing it, I'm going to spoil the story for you if you're not aware of it, but we have to jump to the end of the book of Ruth just to get a sense of of how true this is. And so if you skip over to Ruth chapter 4 and you, you look at verse 13, This is what it says. It says, Ruth gave birth to a son. That's a big statement for Naomi's story. Ruth gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, this son. He will renew your life. And sustain you in your old age. And then hear this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, this book ends with Naomi realizing that God's love had not left her. It just felt like it had. And friends, we will have times when it feels that way too. Which is why If we're going to stay loyal to God, we must realize that though God is providentially active in our circumstances, our circumstances are way too fragile to be the thing that informs us about who God is and how he feels about us. That uh, this is why our circumstances were never, never intended to be the foundation of of our faith in God. For, like, for, we're not great at interpreting our circumstances. I mean, 
all parents in this room know this. You ever try to feed your kids vegetables, right? Like, I mean, I remember feeding my kids vegetables, and, and they, they just, it's clear that they think that vegetables are the worst and their parents are the worst for trying to get them to eat the vegetables. But like our, my kids, uh, we all need a better way of being able to interpret our circumstances. They needed a different way to be able to tell if me and Krista really are the worst parents. And we need a different way to tell what God's really like. See, if we use our circumstances uh, as the key proof or our way of knowing what God is like, then we're going to get a very skewed and messed up view. One of the reasons why is because our time frame for trying to interpret our circumstances is way too short. See, we want to use a watch when we really need to use a calendar. But when we try to find a way to, when we try to interpret what God is like by looking and interpreting our circumstances, especially our immediate circumstances, then there will be times when you will be convinced that God is against you and that God has forsaken you and that God does not love you with a loyal love. But friends, the truth is God is for you. And the truth is, God will not forsake you. And he has not abandoned you. And the truth is, though it may feel like your story has ended in tragedy, your story is not over. For the God who loves you and is good is in control of your story, governing and guiding it to a good conclusion and even using these tragic circumstances in your life and in my life to bring about his good purposes. And those are strong statements that I'm making right here. You think, okay, back that up, right? What's your proof, Jake? Let me tell you what it is. It's because our faith isn't founded on our circumstances, but on God's promises. Promises that we can believe because of Jesus. Jesus, the one who came from the line of David, who came from the line of Jesse, who came from the grandson that Naomi held in her arms. See, uh, Jesus uh, has told us and showed us and authoritatively demonstrated for us that God loves you and is for you and will never leave you nor forsake you and that he can work out even the most tragic of circumstances to bring about the greatest good. Is that not what the cross was? The most tragic of circumstances. We killed God and through it, God brought about the greatest purpose ever accomplished restoring renewal of the world. Jesus shows us that we can trust God's promises. Jesus won't leave us. Instead, he left heaven to come to us, to save us. As John 3, 16 
and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the, the world, but to save the world through him. And through Jesus, we're promised God won't leave us. Instead, he left heaven to be with us. And through Jesus, God demonstrated his love for us. He secured our redemption so that we can, as Romans 8, 28 says, know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so, friends, this is the promises of God that we can trust because of the person of Jesus. That is what we are to set as the firm foundation of our faith. For he stands as the true and concrete measure of God's character and his loyal love for you. See, last week, uh, if you were here, you heard me ask you, hey, what is your life founded on? What is determining how you live? Is it Jesus' way or something else? And today, I'm asking you, what is your faith founded on? What's determining what you believe about God? Are you primarily looking to your circumstances to tell you what God is like and how he feels about you? Or is your faith founded on the person and the promises of Jesus? And as we begin our study in the book of Ruth, my encouragement for you is to evaluate that and to choose to lean into God's promises. And let what Jesus did for you be the proof that you can trust God even when the circumstances of your life might seem to tell you differently. See, our circumstances reveal God's providential activity. That is true. But God's promises reveal God's unchanging character. And if we're going to loyally love God, then we must make his promises the foundation of our faith. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.